Welcome again to the Religions Podcast, the podcast that uses stories to teach the truths that have been revealed to mankind through the means of religion and science. I have some good news this week. Religions is now available on Amazon Music and Audible. So if if you're somebody who subscribes to either of those, that may be the easiest way or the simplest way for you to access new episodes. Be sure that if you like the podcast and you do listen on, especially on Audible, that you leave a review. Audible and um, oh, Apple Podcasts, I think, is the other one. Both of those allow for reviews. And if you leave a review, a well-worded and well-thought-out review, I would appreciate the feedback, and it would also help lead people to the podcast. So I do appreciate that. If you, if you do listen, please take a moment and rate it and review it if you're listening on a, plat- on a platform that will let you. During my personal study this past week, I have been reading some of what um, Russell M. Nelson, the current president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has said in addresses given during his time when he's been called as an apostle. Something interesting that I have found that I didn't remember from before, and he's repeatedly mentioned it, is a moment in his life when he, and this is in his words, he failed to separate my professional knowledge from my religious convictions. He was being chastised for that by a co-worker. And um, he mentions it at least twice in two different talks. And the second time he mentioned it, um, he added more information about the incident. And at the opening of his address, he, he gave a definition for religion as being something that means to ligate again or to tie back. And in this case, specifically, to tie us back to God. So the purpose of religion is to tie us back to God. And then let me just read this quote here. He says, quote, Clinicians, academicians, and politicians are often put to the test of faith in pursuit of their goals. Will their religion show or will it be hidden? Are they tied back to God or to man? I had such a test decades ago when one of my medical faculty colleagues chastised me for failing to separate my professional knowledge from my religious convictions. He demanded that I not combine the two. How could I do that? Truth is truth. It is not divisible, and any part of it cannot be set aside. Whether truth emerges from a scientific laboratory or through revelation, all truth emanates from God. All truth is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, I was being asked to hide my faith. I did not comply with my colleague's request. I let my faith show. Well, my brothers and sisters who are listening today, have you considered that before? All truth emanates from God, he said. Do you believe that? Well, I do. When learning in science, sometimes we have the tendency to extricate our thoughts as much as possible from many of the parts that make us human, and we focus mainly on the logical. We try to be like Mr. Spock, raising our eyebrows at emotional responses and seeing things in an analytical way. Okay, that may be harsh, and it may be truer in some sciences more than in others, but nevertheless, the idea is there, and it's palpable if you're talking to a scientist who's really focusing on on their stuff. It's like they're, they're totally analytical. And, uh, and I have been guilty of that at times myself in explaining things to my students. But what I'm about to say to you will sound strange if you're one of those that's in that analytical Mr. Spock mindset. But I urge you to hear me out. Stop and consider for a second. What if mankind, in all of its new discoveries of truth, really hadn't discovered anything in the sense that we normally think of it? What if they instead just happened to be at the right place and time when the knowledge could be dispensed to them from a being who already knows it. 
like a teacher. What if instead of Newton and Leibniz inventing calculus, the time was ripe and both of these just happened to be prepared enough to receive that level of mathematical knowledge as dispensed from a being who has power over a more precise and perfect mathematics than we do? That is precisely how I believe we obtain our knowledge. An ancient prophet, who also at the time was a political ruler over his people, and who the people loved very much, taught something very similar. His name was King Benjamin, and here's how he put it. Quote, Believe in God. Believe that He is, and that He created all things both in heaven and in earth. Believe that He has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. One of the reasons why I tell stories that include youth and children is because there is a certain vibrance in learning as a child. When we start out learning something for the first time, there's this almost magical quality to the knowledge. It's as if we can feel doors of understanding opening and the world becoming at once smaller and at the same time, you know, a lot you know, bigger than we ever thought possible and more unimaginable. And that's a magical thing to be constricting and contracting at the same time. In childhood, this learning is going on for us on all fronts. As children, we're learning to a great degree. We were learning language, we're learning from observation, we're learning by imagination. Now, let's focus on that last one. Unfortunately for many of us, as we grow, our avenues of learning narrow. Imagination is one of the first ones to shut off. We become more like Spock and less like Einstein. Now, if there's one person that we can learn from about this, it's Einstein. He was able to keep his imagination active, and it not only helped um, him provide entertainment and be creative, but it also helped him solve mysteries of the universe. For Einstein, almost entirely in his mind, he imagined a solution which revolutionized physics and opened the world to the next level of understanding beyond the mechanical world that was described by Sir Isaac Newton which, by the way, we still study in physics today for the first couple years of physics, and then we get introduced to Einstein a little bit later. But just so you don't diminish the importance of understanding what Newton discovered before Einstein did, the knowledge that Newton discovered or was led to was sufficient enough to take us to the moon. Think about that for a minute. Way, way back, hundreds of years ago, he discovered stuff that was so powerful that we actually used it to get to the moon. So, perhaps one of the reasons we learn better as children is linked to our imaginations being active. We can be overcome with wonder and thrill as something, you know, something we learn as a child. But as adults, we don't allow ourselves that same enjoyment. For many people, it is as if time and our experiences take the special qualities of wonderment of childhood out of the learning. I don't think it needs to be that way. And in... In the same talk I referenced two episodes ago by Lawrence Corbridge, he points out that something that I found to be a profound truth, and that often we're looking for signs and wonders as evidence, and, uh, and you know, having trouble believing signs and wonders, but then he mentions that uh, even though healings and things like that are remarkable, have we even stopped to think about the fact that, hey, the human body works, how remarkable is that in the first place? Are we astounded by that? Do we, do we roll back in, in our imagination and think, wow, how is that even possible? Fixing something that's broken isn't very oppressive, but 
the fact that it exists in the first place is impressive. We could carry that analogy a little further. We, you know, we think about the, the amazing things that we see in this world. How amazing is it that we have eyes to see them with? So we definitely have some blessings and things that we take for granted. And if we open our childlike wonder, I think we'll recognize how great the things that we already have are. And we won't necessarily be looking so much for, well, if God exists, then wouldn't this be the case? Well, would it? We're here. And the world is an amazing place. Let's take some wonder and enjoyment in it. As you listen to today's story, try to be a child again. Try to hear through the eyes of somebody who's going to go into the 8th grade after summer vacation, because that's who's going to be telling us our story today. Today's story is called, You Can't Touch This. His last name was McDermott, but I would call him Motman instead. I met him the summer before I came to the 8th grade. He was a genius, I'm pretty sure. How do I know? Well, he acted kind of like those geniuses you see on TV. You know the ones who don't have many friends, but everybody wants to be their friend when they realize that the genius knows something that will save the world? Yeah, he was like that. His clothes were, well, old. To say they were out of style wouldn't quite be enough. He was a little more put together than Einstein, but uh, only a little. At least he didn't smell bad. I remember him always being clean. He just didn't seem very concerned about what he looked like. The biggest reason I think he was a genius is because of what he taught me. I stumbled across his house as I was out playing fetch with my dog. Brutus was really good at playing fetch. But occasionally, instead of catching the ball, he would bump it with his nose and knock it in a new direction. Well, that's what happened. Brutus knocked the ball into Mopman's yard right over his fence. The horse in the pasture across the street showed his teeth and gave a happy, horsey laugh as he saw what had happened. Brutus barked a deep reply to the horse. This shut him up. What's that you say? Horses don't laugh? Well, I was the one that was there, so take my word for it. His yard was covered in trees. It was like a forest in the middle of town. As I looked through the gate... I could hardly see his house. I couldn't even find the gate latch. So I yelled, Hello? Hello, is anyone there? I waited and tried yelling a couple more times. I was just about to give up on the ball and go home and get another when suddenly the gate opened. It opened all by itself. I could hear a motor whirring, which must have opened it. I was looking at it trying to figure out what had happened when I heard a voice. I'll meet you at the front door, it said. It came from way up toward the top of the fence. I looked up and found a speaker up there. I had never seen an automatic fence before. In fact, I didn't even know anyone who had a fence around their house. What had the voice said? Something about the front door, I remembered. I decided I better do what it said and walked toward where I had seen the house through the trees. I took Brutus with me, just in case. I grabbed him by the collar so he wouldn't head off into the trees. Before I even got there, I heard a voice from behind a bush at the front of the house. What have you got for me? I wasn't sure what to say, so I just answered as best I could. Nothing! As I rounded the corner and could see finally where the voice had come from, I was shocked. I already mentioned Mopman's hair. Well, 
It caught me so much by surprise that I think I literally jumped back from the side of the man. My surprise must have scared Brutus, too. He started barking at the wild-haired man on the front porch. I quieted Brutus, the whole time not taking my eyes off the man. He then, laughing at me, continued, Oh, you aren't the mailman? You don't know me. His skin was dark, and it seemed extra dark next to the gray of his crazy head of hair. I let him know about my ball going over his fence, and pointed in the direction I thought it would be, deep into the yard forest to my right. On the inside, it was even more a forest than it was on the outside. There wasn't even a lawn, no grass like all the other houses in town. I had walked up a gravel path from the gate, but other than this path, it looked like the place grew wild. The trees were thick. There wasn't much growing on the ground, just a few weeds here and there. It felt like a place I would like to go camping. Motman, as I would later call him, came down off his porch. He walked with a bit of a hitch, like one leg was shorter than the other. Well, lead me to it, he said. Holding tightly to Brutus's collar, I headed into the woods where I thought the ball would be, followed closely by the man whose name I didn't yet know. We had to duck beneath some low-grown trees and dodge some blackberry bushes. Then I recognized the spot. It should be by this tree somewhere. This is the tree I saw where it gone over the fence. It went over the fence, I think you mean, he corrected me. Sure, I said, rolling my eyes at the comment, while looking away from him, of course. He sounded like my mother correcting me like that. I looked around and had no luck finding it. I was about to give up when I heard the man say, It is up there! Turning to face him, I looked where his finger was pointing in a pine tree. I couldn't see it, so I backed up until I could see where he was pointing. Sure enough, stuck among the needles on one of the boughs of the tree was a bright yellow tennis ball. Oh, I can't reach that. No, you can't, replied the man. He then just stood there, glancing occasionally at me, as if waiting for me to figure something out. This guy was annoying me a little. What should I do to get this down? I asked him. You are an intelligent being. You can decide for yourself how you get it down. This guy was obviously a different egg. He wasn't scary to me. Brutus was my most reliable creep detector. When he came up against a shady individual, he would keep barking until we were far away from them. Brutus wasn't worried about this guy, so I wasn't either. He hadn't been concerned with him since the time that he and I were both startled by him back on the porch. He may not be a creep, but he was strange. His movements and everything about him reminded me of characters in Men in Black. Perhaps he was an alien in human skin and was trying to fit in and wasn't quite the right size. Also, something about the way he spoke was weird. He didn't speak like the rest of the people I knew in town. The man interrupted my concerns with a great big yawn. I realized as he did so that he was waiting for me to figure out how to get the ball out of the tree. I looked around me and found a rock. I picked it up and was about to throw it when I thought better of it and turned to the man and asked him if it would be all right for me to throw the rock. That would be acceptable so long as you don't throw it toward my house, came the reply. I walked a bit to the side so that my throwing angle was farther away from his house, and then threw the rock toward the ball, missing it by a foot or so. But the rock did strike the bow, and the ball rolled slightly, 
and stopped, wedging against a thick patch of needles. Now the ball would be even harder to move. I picked up another rock and tried again, but again I missed. A third time I tried with the same result. It was obvious that the ball wouldn't move unless I hit it directly with the rock. I stepped back from the tree and looked around. I thought perhaps I would find a stick that was long enough to shake the bow. I didn't see one, but I did see a large rake resting against the side of the house. I wondered what a guy with no lawn needed a rake for. Could I use your rake? You may, he said. That did the trick. One quick pull and the ball fell to the ground. Brutus was on it in an instant and quickly brought it to me and dropped it at my feet, looking up at me expectantly. Thank you, I said to the man as I walked over to put the rake back against the house. Brutus, upon seeing me move, picked up the ball and followed me. Where I stopped, he dropped the ball again at my feet. Not now, Brutus, I said. I picked up the ball and stuck it awkwardly in my pocket. It didn't fit very well. I do not mind if you throw the ball to him, said the man. Sure, I said. I then threw the ball in the direction where I thought it wouldn't get caught in a tree or bush. Brutus was on his way as soon as the ball left my hand, his paws kicking up pine needles and dirt. He retrieved the ball after one bounce and brought it back, dropping it at my feet. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see the man looking admiringly at Brutus. He is a fantastic animal! I shrugged. I loved Brutus, but fantastic seemed a bit much. May I throw the ball to him? he asked. Sure, I said, handing him the ball. The man threw the ball in a different direction, right toward the house. It bounced off the wall. Brutus was quick to respond and jumped up to catch the ball high in the air. It was a spectacular sight. Amazing, said the man as Brutus brought the ball back to him, dropping it into a pile of old pine needles. Can you imagine what you could do if you had reflexes like this dog has? The man asked me, a look of genuine admiration on his face. That would be so cool, I said. I've thought about it a hundred times. I could be like Superman and catch bullets. There are phenomenal possibilities with reflexes like that, no doubt, replied the man. I started to realize that he was much cooler than I had originally thought. After Brutus returned the ball to him, he threw it again, throwing the ball directly at Brutus, who was only a few feet away. To my surprise, he caught it easily. Surprised at the speed of Brutus's reflexes, I started laughing. The man did too. I had never tried throwing the ball directly at Brutus before. For some reason, it had never occurred to me to try that. Instead, I would always throw it past him so that he could chase it. Fantastic, said the man, as he was getting ready to throw the ball once again. This time, he brought the ball toward his chest and gave it a tight and quick thrust towards Brutus, who was even closer than the last time. He caught it again, and we both laughed again. Brutus seemed to be loving the attention. I had always thought that when he was playing fetch, his panting mouth looked like a great big face-absorbing smile. Now this smile looked bigger than ever, and his tail seemed as though it might come loose and get lost in the underbrush. I wondered if he was responding to our delight, and was happy about pleasing us. The man continued throwing the ball. Brutus loved every minute of it. After a few minutes, the man turned to me and returned the ball. That is one sprightly canine, 
What do you call him? Brutus? Yes, sir, I replied. I hope that you know that you and Brutus can come back here to play in the yard in the future. At this, the man must have noticed the look on my face. It was probably the natural look a boy would have after he was invited to a crazy-looking guy's house after having the standard school discussion about stranger danger. Of course, you should talk to your mother first to make sure the idea suits her fancy. Suits her fancy? Who was this guy? I nodded my head politely and headed for home. I left his yard thinking that I would never be back there again. On the way home, I started to wonder why he looked like he might be from India, but his name made him sound like he was from Scotland. Or, or would that be Ireland? I would never know. It was about a week later, when walking from my house toward the gas station a few blocks down, that I passed the man's house again. I looked with curiosity through the gate to see if anything in the yard had changed. It hadn't. His house wasn't like mine. Mom seemed to think that a yard was a place for slave labor, which required constant mowing, edging, weed pulling, and planting and watering the pretties. The pretties is what we called the flowers. This man seemed to have a much better idea. Just plant a few trees and let it do the natural thing. Then build a wall around it so that if any of the neighbors that thought it would be better to have a yard didn't have anything to say about it. No mower, no trimmer, for all I could tell, he didn't even sprinkle it. If I did talk to my mom about this, I would be sure to mention the yard and how we should do the same thing. While I was looking, I became aware of something moving out of the corner of my eye, just inside the fence. It was the man. He hadn't seen me yet, so, feeling instantly like I was doing something sneaky, I started walking a little faster so that I might get out of sight before he turned. I walked as fast as I could without looking suspicious, and was almost clear when I heard the man say, Hey boy, with Brutus! I turned at the greeting, which was obviously directed at me, a little annoyed that the only name he knew was my dog's name. I turned around to face him, and I realized that I didn't know his name either, so I just stood there a second and said, Hi! Hello there, young lad, he said, his hand raised. Are you going to bring Brutus over to retrieve the ball again soon? I haven't talked to my mother yet, I told him. You were right. She would want to know before I came over. You have a very sensible mother. It would not be a good idea for her to let you associate with people that you do not know very well. I was quiet for a while, and we both looked at each other. I got the feeling he was measuring me, somehow, as if he were sizing me up for a job or something. Well, I better get going, I said, as I turned to leave. You tell your mother, Mr. McDermott has invited you over. I acknowledged this with a wave and continued on. That night, I remembered the encounter and mentioned it to Mom. Oh, Mr. McDermott wants you to come by? She asked, with an expression on her face that seemed to say that she was remembering something. She had that look often, pretty much whenever something happened that made her remember Dad. Dad was killed in Afghanistan when I was in the fourth grade. For a long time after we heard the news of what had happened to Dad, she would have the remembering look on her face. She hardly had that look anymore, but on days like Father's Day and Christmas, she still had it. That was the face she had right now. I knew right then that Mr. McDermott had something to do with my dad. Did Mr. McDermott know dad? I asked her. What makes you think that? She said, after shaking off the look. I had a hard time knowing what to say. 
I had never told Mom about her look when she would remember Dad. I didn't want her to know about it. I think I was afraid she might stop. If the truth were known, I kind of liked knowing when she was remembering Dad. It made me remember him, too. I don't know, just wondering, I finally replied. Yes, as a matter of fact, he did know your dad. He was his scoutmaster when he was your age. Scoutmaster? I asked. You mean a guy that takes scouts camping? Yes, Mom replied. Your dad told me stories of going camping with Motman. Motman? I wondered. Mom giggled. I know, it's a weird name, but that's what he said that the scouts used to call him. I guess you'll have to ask him about it when you visit him again. You mean it's okay for me to go over there again? I asked excitedly. I don't see why not. Your dad always spoke very highly of him, so I think he'd be a good person for you to get to know. It is strange how we think of things sometimes. But for me, now the man who I once thought I didn't want to see again was the one person in the world that I was most excited to see. I was excited to see what he could tell me about my dad. The next morning, I went over, Brutus tagging along by my heels, waiting for when I would start to throw the ball. I yelled again at the gate, and in a few moments heard his voice over the intercom. Hark! Who goes there? I think he knew it was me. Billy Baxter, I said hesitantly, and followed it with, The boy with the dog named Brutus! Ah, the master of Brutus! came the tinny reply. Come in! As I heard the last words, a motor whirred, and the gate started to slide open. As I approached the front door of the house, I heard the front door open and saw Mr. McDermott step out. Billy Baxter, he said excitedly. Are you the son of Sandpiper Baxter? My dad's name was Wallace Baxter, I told him. I was beginning to wonder if he really did know my father. First the over-obsession with Brutus, now he called my dad by a different name. So your father never told you his earned name? Earned name? I wondered. You bet. It was a tradition with our troop to give an earned name to each member of our troop. Your father earned his name because in the very first campout with the troop, he was already moving around and acting as if he knew what to do. Even though he was brand new, sandpiper hatchlings start walking and are fully capable right at birth. So we gave him the name of Sandpiper Baxter since he hit the ground running. Do you have an earned name, Billy? No, just Billy. My mom calls me Turd sometimes, though. I see, said Mr. McDermott, his eyebrows lifted. Well, that name may also be an earned name, but it will hardly do for public now, will it? Perhaps later your earned name will be made known. Anyway, you have come for another reason. He pulled out a ball from behind his back, bringing Brutus instantly to attention, his ears erect and his body tight and ready. Mr. McDermott threw the ball directly at Brutus, which he instantly caught. Good boy, he told him and approached and patted his head. Brutus shook this off. He had no time for affection when there was a ball in play. He dropped the ball at Mr. McDermott's feet and moved his head to the side as if to show him how to throw it. I see Brutus here has earned a name. He is, without a doubt, the fetcher of ball. I laughed at this. I was beginning to understand why my father might have liked this old man. Are you ready to assist me with some research? He asked, turning to me. I told him I would, but I wasn't sure what he had in mind. Was this the kind of guy who would do research on children? 
Would he see if some new shampoo he had developed would work on me while all my hair falls out and I'm left to face the rest of my life bald? Would he put me in a cannon and shoot me out to see if the way I hold my arms will affect how far he can shoot me? Would he give me a potion that would turn me into a monster? I figured if Dad survived, that I would be safe. He seemed to sense my worries because when I looked up at him, again, he was smiling at me. Don't worry, this experiment is perfectly safe, he reassured. Come with me. He started hobbling toward the back of the house. I followed. Around the back was what looked like a normal garage, except there was only what once may have been a driveway with gravel leading up to it, but now it was overgrown with bushes and covered with pine needles. The garage, it appeared, hadn't held a car in a long time. But it did hold a camera, mounted on a tripod, some lights, and some other cool stuff. He grabbed the camera and tripod and brought it outside. Do you want to be the cameraman or the one who throws the ball to Brutus? He asked me. I wanted to be the cameraman, but I wondered if he would let me touch his camera. It didn't look new. Nobody I knew used anything like that but their cell phone for a camera anyway, but it did look expensive. Can I be the cameraman? I wondered. Sure thing. Do you know how to run one? You better show me. I haven't run anything like that before. He showed me how to work the camera. The best thing was the zoom. I zoomed onto the ground and saw ants that I didn't even know were there. All right, let's get some video. He was so excited. It almost made me laugh to see someone as old as him that excited. I was still looking at the ants on the ground and was thrilling to watch them so closely. How do they do that? I asked out of turn. Do what? asked Mr. McDermott. Oh, sorry. I was distracted by some ants I can see in your camera. They are climbing up the branches of that bush over there, upside down. I see. No wonder your attention is somewhere else. You are learning something altogether different. He walked around behind me and reached out to open the screen on the side of the camera that I didn't even know was there. When he opened the side screen, I lost the ants I was looking at. Can you find them again so I can see them? He asked me. I did my best, and after a bit I found them. He watched for a moment. You should start recording. I did. After a moment of watching and recording, by the way, I might add, I got some great footage. We took the camera and plugged it into the TV that was also in the garage. Apparently it was there for this very purpose. As we watched the recording, Mr. McDermott asked me, Were you wondering how the ants can walk upside down on the branches and leaves? I nodded. That is a great question. Have you ever looked at one under a microscope before? No, sir. Well, let's have a look. He then went over and scrambled through a drawer and found some things hanging on the wall and then came back with a jar with some cotton balls in it and another bottle with some liquid. He poured the liquid in onto the cotton balls and then put the lid on the jar. Let's go get some ants. I followed him over to the bush where I had been recording the ants and watched as he put his finger on the branch and waited for one of the ants to crawl on it. Be careful, I told him. Those are red ants, and they will bite you. Right you are. I got a bunch of these in my leg of my pants once. Thousands of them. That hurts something fierce. But, he continued, if you don't provoke them, they don't bite. As I watched, two of them crawled on his finger. I was so nervous I could hardly watch, yet couldn't look away. As soon as they were on his finger, he pulled it away from the bush and asked me to open the jar. I did so quickly, 
I was more worried about him getting bites from the ants than he was. He shook his finger, and both of the ants fell into the cotton balls. Now put the lid back on, he directed me. We watched the ants as we headed back to the garage. They were moving quickly at first, then slowed, and eventually stopped moving. Arriving at the garage, we walked over to a microscope. I had used one like it before in school. Let's have a look at these little fellas, he said. He took a minute adjusting the microscope. Then, using some tweezers, he removed one of the ants and placed it on a glass slide and put it under the lens. He looked again and adjusted it, then motioned for me to look. Is that hairy-looking thing the leg? I asked. Yes, it is. He then taught me how to gently move the slide and adjust the knobs to focus the image on a different place. Wow! There's a hook on the end of the leg, I almost shouted. No wonder they can hang on things upside down. It is impressive for sure, said Mr. McDermott. I was surprised again at how hard it was to shake them off my finger. All of a sudden, what seemed perfectly clear was now confusing. So I went ahead and asked, I can understand how the hook might help the ant walk upside down on the plant, since it has a rough surface, but how would the hook help it hold on to your hand? With that, the man turned on the light by a microscope, removed the slide with the ant, and put his finger on the little table of the microscope. After adjusting the microscope, he had me look through the lens. It was incredible. The ridges of his fingertips looked like mountains separated by curvy valleys. There were lots of other rough edges and cracks in the surface of his skin. Wow! Okay, so your skin isn't a smooth surface to an ant, I said. Mr. McDermott laughed. No, Billy, it isn't. Sometimes it isn't even smooth to me. When my skin gets dry, it gets even worse. But the smoothness of a surface isn't all that matters to these little creatures. Follow me. He then took the glass slide from the table, and we went back to the bush with the red ants on it. This is a polished glass surface. It is remarkably smooth. He then held it to the stem of the bush where the ants were crawling. Soon enough, there were ants crawling across the surface of the glass with no apparent difficulty. It was as if they had not just hooks, but little ant spy gear suction cups on their feet. So how can they walk on a surface smooth like that? The hooks on their legs wouldn't be much help, I wondered. There is more to it than we can see, or I could show you. But even the surface of the glass, if you could get close enough to it, is not smooth. In fact, it would be quite rough if you could see small enough. Just like how when you thought my finger was smooth until you looked at it through the microscope. So this glass in this microscope looks smooth, but if you take it to a better microscope, you would see the roughness of it. Is everything rough when you zoom in far enough? I asked. Well, yes, he smiled. If we could see small enough, you would even go down to the size of the molecules and atoms that make up everything. Those are far from smooth. Oh, I learned about those in school. My teacher took some paper and cut it over and over. She explained that if we kept doing it, that eventually we would get so small that we couldn't cut it anymore, and that that was what we call an atom. She said it was the smallest part of our world. Mr. McDermott was nodding his head. Do you know about atoms, Mr. McDermott? I asked him. Yes, I know a thing or two about them. But also, you should call me Motman. That is what your father called me, and I would like it very much if you called me the same name. I guess you could say that it was my earned name. Motman? I questioned, trying to look surprised by his revealing of the name to me, which I had already known. 
That is the name my scouts started to call me. It is a name that I love. I hope that you will call me that name. He now looked serious. Sure, I said. I can call you that. But I still couldn't bring myself to say it. I thought that it might sound funny, and that he might laugh if I did. So you know about Adams, I changed the subject. Yes, I do know something about them. How did you learn about them, I wondered. I was a nuclear physicist back in my professional days. In that work, it is required to know a lot about atoms. In fact, I worked in what many people call atomic energy. Atomic means from atoms. I was impressed. I knew about atomic energy, or at least I knew about atomic bombs. The man instantly grew much more interesting in my mind. So you probably know more about atoms than my teacher, I said. That is possible, but I am sure there are many things that your teacher knows that I do not know. I found this idea hard to believe, but I didn't want to contradict him. I did want to know more, though, so I asked. So all atoms are rough? Let's just say atoms are funny. We can't see them, so we have to imagine what they look like. If you can't see them, how do you know that they are rough? I asked. Ah, that is a great question, and it has a really long answer, because it took us a long time to learn what we know about atoms. I nodded that I understood. Have you heard about Benjamin Franklin and the kite? He asked. Yes, he flew a kite with a key on the string and was struck by lightning, I replied. Well, yes, he flew a kite with a key on it, but he wasn't really struck by lightning, or he wouldn't have been alive long enough to tell anyone else about it, he smiled. But he did succeed in capturing electrical energy, which he called electric fire, from them. Franklin did a lot of research with electricity, and one of the ideas that he had was that electricity was a result of a fluid, which would build up when some things interact with each other. His idea was that if there was more fluid in one object than another, the fluid would rush from one to the other until they had the same amount of the fluid. That sounds kind of crazy, I thought out loud. Does it? he asked. I nodded. Have you ever walked on a carpet with your socks and then suddenly touched a doorknob or some other object and was shocked? Yeah, I shock my sister that way all the time. I also do that at the park on the plastic slide. I stopped quickly after mentioning the slide. Mom had told me that I shouldn't go on the slide anymore, that I was too big. I didn't want Motman to tell on me. Yes, that is the same thing. Now think about Franklin's idea. You get filled up with electric fluid when you shuffle your feet in the carpet or when you slide down the slide. Then when you touch something like a doorknob or your sister, or the metal frame of the slide, the electrical fluid rushes out. I guess that makes sense. It does make sense. In fact, it was the best understanding we had of electricity for a long time. Since that time, there have been many, many other experiments by many other scientists. And through these experiments, we have learned that instead of a fluid, there is actually a particle that builds up charge. They called this particle the electron. This was discovered much later in England by a man named Thompson. A light bulb went on in my mind. My teacher talked about those. They are on the outside of the atom. She said that they have a negative charge, I said excitedly. Bless your teacher, she is teaching you well. They are on the outside of the atom, and they are the easiest part of the atom to brush off. That is what happens when you rub your socks in the carpet or when you slide down the slide. Electrons are rubbing off of one surface onto another. Then when you touch another object, the extra electrons rush from one object to another until they balance out. Wow, that is a lot like the idea that Benjamin Franklin had. 
Yes, it is. Now that you know about electrons, let's talk about how this relates to the ant. All atoms normally have at least one electron around the center or the nucleus. Did your teacher talk to you about that? He asked. I think so, but I don't remember much about it. It was summer vacation, after all. Well, these electrons stay around the atoms, and they are constantly, rapidly moving around. If you could see the outer boundaries of the atoms, they would look like a little bit of a fuzzy cloud, constantly changing shape as the electrons fly around the atom. They would almost appear to jiggle or shake. I tried imagining these in my mind as he spoke. For big things like us, gravity is the most prominent force we worry about. But for things like ants and smaller, the electrical forces caused by these electrons are much stronger and are a much bigger deal for little insects than they are for us. I nodded my understanding. So we, which are much stronger than ants, have a stronger force like gravity which affects us, but the smaller ants worry about the smaller electrical forces? He shook his head. No, it is actually entirely opposite. Gravity is a tiny force compared to electrical force. It affects us more because we are more massive. Gravity has effects on things based on how massive they are. The more massive the object, the more gravity affects it. Like elephants are affected more by gravity than you are, my friend. I nodded. That made sense. Smaller critters like ants are affected much less by gravity and are controlled much more by electrical forces. I nodded again, then hesitated. But if gravity is a weaker force than electrical forces, why don't they affect bigger things like you and me? You and I, he corrected me. You and I, I repeated. We may have to come back to this, for it may take longer to understand. Electrical forces are much stronger than gravity, but we are affected more by gravity because we are massive compared to the ant. The ant isn't as concerned about gravity. That is why walking upside down for an ant isn't as big of a deal as it is for you and for the elephant. I almost nodded again, but realized I still wasn't sure about electrical forces. So if electrical forces are so much stronger, how come I never notice them? I asked. You do notice them. You notice them all the time. You just don't know that you are noticing them. He looked at me, as if to make sure I was listening. Here, push on the wall. He directed me to the wall next to the garage door. I pushed on it. That is electrical force, he explained. Now I knew I was confused. I didn't feel anything. Mottman stopped and scratched his chin for a minute, then walked over to one of the many trees in his yard, as if measuring it with his eyes. He then turned back to me and asked, Can you jump up and grab the limb that hang down from it? Yes, I can reach that one, I responded. Jumping up is something that I was very good at. I jumped and grabbed the branch that he had pointed to and was hanging about a foot from the ground. Can you hang there by one hand? he asked. I did so. Why aren't you falling? he asked me. Because I'm holding the branch, I replied. Why doesn't your hand just push through the branch? I wasn't sure what he meant, so I tried my best to answer. Because my hand isn't sharp enough to cut through, I guess. My hand was starting to hurt, and it must have shown, because Mottman said I could get down. What is your hand made of? he asked. Skin, I responded. What is your skin made of? he asked. Now I thought I knew where he was going. Atoms, I replied. Correct. And what is the branch made of? he asked. Atoms, I replied. Correct, he congratulated. 
And what is on the outside of all these atoms? he asked me. Electrons, I responded. Then I questioned. Yes. So when your hand is at the top of the branch, the electrons in your atoms were very near the electrons in the branch, correct? he asked. Yes, I responded. And what happens when electrons come very near each other, he asked. After a pause of trying to dust off the knowledge from seventh grade science and finding nothing there to answer his question, I said, I don't know. They repel each other, he said. Electrons don't like to be near each other. In fact, they push away from each other and almost never, ever come into contact with each other. The light bulb in my mind flickered on again. You mean the electrons in my hand and the electrons in the tree branch pushing apart is what kept me from falling as I was holding the branch? I wondered. Si, senor, he exclaimed. That is exactly right. I was thinking about this. The idea was strange. I tried to imagine the clouds of electrons he talked about getting near each other and then pushing away from each other. So the electrons are like magnets and they push each other, I asked. Yes, almost exactly like that, he replied, nodding. So my hand never really touched the branch, I puzzled. The electrons in your atoms never came into contact with the electrons in the tree, no, he replied. But they were very close, close enough to have interactions with each other. So, you might say that they touch each other, but they don't ever really come into contact with each other, no. To put it in perspective, just the number of electrons in your hand that approached the ones in the branch was able to generate more than enough force than to counter the gravitational force exerted on your entire body by the Earth. And the electrons were able to exert much, much more force than that if they needed to. In fact, if we were to take just one electron from each atom in your body and put the electrons in my body, the pull between us now would be about 300,000 times stronger than the pull of gravity created between the sun and the earth. I was impressed. I was impressed that he knew that, though I was not sure how strong the pull between the sun and the earth was. I contemplated this for a moment, then asked, So if my sister makes me mad and I slug her in the shoulder, I never really touched her. I was starting to imagine some cool excuses I could use to stay out of trouble. Oh no, replied Motman, I am not putting my paw in that trap. We both laughed. Then, becoming serious, he turned to me. You better not be slugging your sister. His voice was scolding. Nah, I just threaten her when she gets bratty, I explained. He looked at me questioningly. I, not liking the attention, looked down at my watch. It was eleven o'clock. Shoot, I gotta go, I told him. My mom wanted me home by now. Then you better get going, he said. I'm sorry, we didn't even do the experiment you wanted to do, I said. That is no problem, my young friend. We can do it another time. Can I come back tomorrow and we can do it then, I wondered. If your mother consents, then it is all right with me, he responded with a smile. Until then, do what your mother says and don't slug your sister. I won't. See you tomorrow. With that, Brutus and I headed for home. And this concludes the story portion of today's podcast. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please tell your friends about it. Uh, remember, we're also on Audible and on Amazon or Amazon Music, Amazon Music and Audible. So if you are a subscriber to either of those, that may be a good way to find us. Also, however you've been listening to us, and if you're a regular listener, I thank you very much. Please consider telling your friends 
You can use social media, whatever means is best for you to get the word out. Let people know. I appreciate any word that you can give. I would like to thank also Clank Beald and Monique Kruger for the use of their forest and motor sounds, respectively, from freesound.org. Check them out if you want some sounds. They've got some good recordings for you to check out there, and I appreciate them letting me use their sound for this recording. Thanks again for listening, and uh, until next time, this is Stephen Gardner here at Religions. (laughs) 